In this episode of The Story of the Six, we continue our journey with Guru Hargobind, the sixth guru of the six. The guru returns to Amritsar after his exile in Gwalior, and his family grows and flourishes. One of his young sons, Atal Rai, learns a difficult lesson about deference to the will of the divine. I'm co-producer Erica Wong. Before we begin the episode, we have a favor to ask of you. If you find this work compelling, please be sure to rate it and write a short review. That will definitely help us get the podcast to a wider audience. There is great joy in Amritsar today. Women of modest means but rich in happiness walk the streets bearing baskets laden with flowers. Men and women, dressed in their best clothes, are buying flowers by the basketful. Some women twist flowers into garlands. Others pluck the petals to create colorful, fragrant mounds. The men decorate their shops, and the bazaars resound with the joyous sound of laughter. Men, women, and children frolic in the streets, running hither and thither in excitement. People from surrounding villages are flocking to the town. The Hermandar Sahib is teeming with the faithful, Lost in the melodious sound of hymns being sung, is a king approaching? No, the master of the three worlds himself is nigh. Is it a tyrant who builds prisons and uses force to oppress the people? Far from it. It is the emancipator, the one who shatters the gates of prisons, the one who believes in the reign of love, the one who provides relief and sanctuary to the poor, the orphaned, and the weak. Not a king who rules by fear, but one who is lovingly seated on the throne of every heart. They revere him, not because they fear his power or because they seek to benefit, but because of the vastness of his heart, which makes their hearts swell as well. Yes, he bears swords, but these are not to be feared, for they are the instruments of liberation from tyranny. Today, the fount of love, who provided shelter from the chilling reign of oppression, is returning to Amritsar. As he nears the city, he beholds the golden glow of happiness that suffuses it. He dismounts and continues on foot. He sees the throng of the faithful approaching. On one side, Pai Buddha, Pai Jetha, and the other six shine like stars in the firmament as they sing hymns of joy. On the other, Pai Gurdas, Pai Saindas, and others, heads bowed in humility, eyes shining with love, approach to the sound of hymns, their hearts fixed on their master, 
the joy of reunion is indescribable. The cavalcade proceeds directly to the Harmandar Sahib. A beautiful service concludes with the Ardas or the communal prayer, and the Guru ventures out into the town. The streets are packed. Women fill all the balconies along the streets of the Guru walks. A rain of fragrant petals falls everywhere. The Guru walks through the joyous crowds, drenched in love like a regal swan. Finally, he reaches his home where his mother, Mata Ganga, awaits. Mata Ganga, who has patiently and serenely waited for her son and her guru to return for years. The guru respectfully bows to his mother, who clutches him to her chest and then tries to salute him by bowing. The guru smiles and stops her. Who can understand the ways of these exalted beings? The conversations continue deep into the night, until it is time to return to the Harmandar Sahib. After so many years, the Guru is present again, as the melodious strains of the Asadivar fill the serene surroundings of the Harmandar Sahib. This is my translation of Bhaivir Singh's imagining of the Guru's return to Amritsar. A Sikh trader from Kabul, Pagmal, had heard that Guru Hargobind was fond of fine horses. He searched from Kabul to Bukhara until he found a steed worthy of his master and purchased it at great expense. He bought several more horses, intending to sell them, and hid the Guru's horse covered with tattered rags in his herd as he made his way towards Amritsar. He was, of course, fearful that such a fine animal would attract the attention of the Mughal officers who might try to appropriate it for their own use or as a gift to curry favor with the Emperor Jahangir or his sons. When he got to Lahore, the provincial capital of the Punjab, much to his chagrin, the horse caught the eye of the Mughal governor who decided to acquire it for the prince, Shahabuddin. When Pagmal protested that the horse was not for sale, the governor simply confiscated it. Pagmal hastened to Amritsar and angrily told Guru Hargobind the sorry tale, who quite unperturbed advised him to be patient. There was much consternation in the royal stables. The prince's new horse refused to eat. He developed quite an attitude and would stand on three legs, as though the fourth was injured, angrily whinnying if anyone tried to approach. 
The prince's mentor, the Kazi Rustam, was summoned and the horse was made over to him in the hope that he might be able to calm the animal down, perhaps by reciting a few sacred verses. Of course, nothing the Kazi tried had an impact on the horse's temperament, and being aware of the fact that the horse had been intended for Guru Hargobind, he decided to sell the horse to the Guru. Once the horse was in the Guru's stables, his health and temperament were restored and his strength and beauty attracted attention far and wide. The Kazi was much annoyed and felt that he had somehow been cheated, having parted with the magnificent horse for a pittance. Rustam had a young daughter named Kolla who was extremely devout. She was a follower of the Sufi saint Mia Mir, who had been a dear friend and beloved follower of Guru Arjan's. Kolla would spend hours at Mia Mir's compound, listening to discourses and recitations of Guru Arjan's hymns, which she would then memorize and continue to recite when she got home. Her father, of course, was incensed. How dare you? You're a Muslim and the daughter of a Qazi to boot. It is an offense to recite the writings of the infidels. Kala would calmly ignore his rantings and continue with her devotions, angering her father even more. Once Rustam realized that his daughter was intent on defying him, his anger made him irrational and he sought the counsel of his fellow Qazis. It was determined that Kolla was an apostate and the only appropriate punishment was execution. A decree or fatwa was issued to the effect. Kolla's mother, terrified at the prospect of her daughter's execution, rushed her to Mia Mir. The old sage was much saddened but could find no way out of the dilemma, and then a solution presented itself. He summoned one of his attendants, Abdullah Shah, and instructed him, The girl is in danger and I cannot protect her. Since a fatwa has been issued, the Qazis can have her seized at any moment. Make haste and take her to Amritsar. The Guru always provides shelter to the needy. Besides, nobody can dare to forcibly bring her back if she is under his protection. Guru Hargobind received Abdullah Shah and Kala with great courtesy out of respect for Mia Mir, and when he heard the whole sorry tale, offered her shelter without hesitation. Kala was given clothes and provisions from the langar, and a room was prepared for her. Pleased with her humble demeanor and devoutness, he said, There is no reason for you to be fearful any more. Even if the emperor came here, he would be unable to take you away by force. This is your home now, and nobody will ever harass you or interfere with your devotions anymore. Thus, Kazi Rustam's daughter Kolla came to live in Amritsar.
In Tuarihuru Khalsa, Gyani Gyan Singh offers this account of Kola after her arrival in Amritsar. Kola started her new life with great joy, spending her time in prayer and service, getting even more intensely attached to the Guru. While her connection with the Guru was intensely spiritual, she was completely in the thrall of her master and slowly her feelings began to change. One day she visited the Guru's private quarters and had a wonderful time playing with one of his young sons. As she was playing with the lad, she found herself thinking, what if my relationship with the Guru were different? What if I bore him a son? After returning to her room, Kola fell into a daze. She stopped eating and drinking and affixed her mind on the Guru. Just as the Hindu god Ram visited the aboriginal woman drenched in his love and Lord Krishna visited Draupadi who was intensely enamored of him, Guru Hargobind visited the home of his devotee and was surprised to find her senseless. When Kala was revived, she bowed to the Guru and sat at his feet, obviously distraught and miserable. What is the matter, Kala? Why are you in this state? Did someone insult you or try to molest you? Have you been robbed? Or perhaps you're unwell? Tell me truthfully. Tears streaming down her cheeks, her body racked with sobs, Kala entreated her guru with folded hands. My lord, just as you have blessed me in the spiritual realm, do you think you can bless me in this world too? You are benevolent. You are magnanimous. No supplicant ever leaves your door empty-handed. Will you bless me with a son, my lord, so that I may become a woman of status too, a woman worthy of respect, a woman who will be remembered? The guru looked at Kala and spoke, a trifle sternly. I am astonished. A young woman who has been instructed by the venerable Mia Mir? A young woman who has been in my presence as a beloved Sikh? A woman who has always shown admirable self-control and restraint and has earned such respect asking for this? A son might get you renowned for a few generations, but know this, such glories are ephemeral. They will pass. Aspire for something greater, Kala. Kala felt a deep sense of shame. Forgive me, forgive me, my guru. May I never have such thoughts again. Bless me so that my mind remain pure forever. Fear not, Kala, said the guru. I am glad that you have shaken this desire off. I shall bless you. And what a blessing it shall be. I shall give you a son, such a son, whose glory shall never fade, such a son, who will make your name truly immortal. Kola was beside herself with joy. She gathered together all her jewels and placed them before the Guru. Oh, friend of the poor, she said, this is all the wealth I possess. Please take it and use it as you see fit for the benefit of those in need.
The Guru sent one of his Sikhs with Kala's jewels to Kotumal, a banker, and ordered him to hold the funds after selling the jewels. Baba Buddha was summoned and charged with excavating a new tank using the funds. The Guru turned to Kala and said, This new tank shall be known as Kalsar, Kala's tank. When the tank was completed in 1621, the Guru decreed, Let every pilgrim who comes to bathe in Amritsar take a dip in Kalsar first. To this day, Kalsar is thronged by thousands of visitors in Amritsar. The Guru's own household had continued to grow. He was blessed with six children, five sons, Gurditta, Surajmal, Anirai, Atalrai, Tyagmal, and a daughter named Biro. Gurditta, the oldest son of Guru Hargobind, was born in 1613. The Guru personally supervised his religious education and trained him to be a warrior. Intelligent and brave, Gurditta was a lad who showed great promise and seemed to have all the attributes of a worthy successor to his father. Guru Hargobind's only daughter, Bibi Biro, was born in 1615. Surajmal, the Guru's second son, was born in 1617. He grew up to be a highly intelligent man who would discharge his secular duties to his father's satisfaction. Anirai, the Guru's third son, was born in 1618. He was of reclusive bent and was destined to never marry and have a family. Atalrai, the Guru's fourth son, was born in 1619. A precocious child, wise beyond his years, he was recognized as being spiritually blessed by his father at a very young age. The Guru's youngest son, Tyagmal, was born in 1621. He grew up to become a mighty warrior who was to distinguish himself in battle. Also of reclusive bent, the young Tyagmal was given to pondering the ephemeral nature of life and avoiding worldly entanglements and affairs.
A humble Sikh from Batala named Rama had been very impressed with the young Gurditta and resolved to betroth his daughter, who was named Nihalo, to the Guru's son. Being a poor man from a humble family, he approached the Guru with great trepidation. The Guru, pleased with Rama's humility, consulted his mother, and with Mata Ganga's blessing, Rama's proposal was accepted. Mata Ganga felt that a match be sought for Viro as well, who was next in age. A very poor Sikh whose name was Dharma travelled to the Guru's court with his young son Sadhu to pay his respects. Father and son were poorly dressed, but the Guru saw something precious under their unassuming exteriors. Mindful of his mother's instructions to find a suitable match for Viro, the Guru decided to betroth his daughter to Sadhu. Father and son were quite nonplussed at the honour, but the Guru assured him that in his house all six were equal, regardless of wealth or station. Mother Ganga was a little peeved, not convinced that it was an ideal match for her only granddaughter, but the Guru had made a commitment. In the town of Bakala on the banks of the river Bias lived a Sikh named Mira. He had built a beautiful mansion and dedicated it to the Guru, but had been disappointed as the Guru had not found time to visit him yet. He decided instead to invite Mata Ganga, who accepted his invitation, told him to go back home and promised that she would follow in a few days with the Guru. They were received with great respect and there was much rejoicing in Bakala when they arrived. After three days, Mata Ganga informed her son that it was time for her to complete her mortal journey. She had lived a tumultuous life and her eyes had seen much sorrow, but she had raised her son and had seen him thrive as Guru. She had experienced the joy of playing with her grandchildren, two of whom were even betrothed. It was time to depart. She decreed that just as her husband Guru Arjan's body had been consigned to the waters of the Ravi, her remains too should be set adrift in the Bias. In 1621, the same year in which her youngest grandchild Tiagmal was born, Mata Ganga left the world. Mother Ganga's body was born into the waters of the Bias by four Sikhs, and the Guru prepared to return to Amritsar. Mihra, whose joy at hosting the Guru and his mother had turned to grief at her passing, begged the Guru to stay. Stay for at least ten days, my Guru. Complete the mourning period for your mother here, and accept the ceremonial turban, an anointing that happens on the tenth day of mourning. I must go, Mira, said the Guru. But fear not. A Guru will be anointed in Bakala, and you shall survive to see that auspicious day. With that blessing and prophecy, the Guru returned to Amritsar.
There had been great joy in Amritsar when the Guru was blessed with a fourth son. Pai Buddha, who was given the honor of picking a name for the child, named him Atalrai. The festivities continued for several days after the child's birth. A Sikh of somewhat advanced years, whose name was Gurmukh, participated enthusiastically in the festivities, overjoyed that the family of the Guru was growing. Deep in his heart was a desire, and perhaps the joy that pervaded the Guru's court emboldened him to make a representation. My beloved Guru, he said, your bounty is infinite and you are an ocean of kindness. Will you bless me as well? If a child were to be born in my home, my final days will pass in contentment. The Guru looked at Gurmukh taking in his grey hair and laughed. You still have this desire in your heart despite your advanced age? Fear not, Gurmukh. Address your prayers to the One, and even this desire will be fulfilled. Gurmukh bowed his head gratefully and thanked the Guru for his blessing. Several months later, his wife delivered a healthy baby boy. Atal Rai was a happy child, much doted upon by his grandmother Mata Ganga, his parents, and all the Sikhs who vied for an opportunity to play with him and take care of him. Blessed with a calm disposition, the child always had a smile on his face. Being in his presence would cheer up the saddest and most inconsolable person. It truly seemed that he was divinely blessed. When the child turned five, the Guru summoned Pai Buddha. O venerable sage, the Guru said, this child is now in your care. You shall teach him the Gurmukhi alphabet and his daily prayers. Pai Buddha demurred. This child is blessed, my Guru. What could I possibly have to teach him? The Guru just smiled and said, He is your ward now. The bright and precocious Atal Rai mastered the alphabet rapidly and soon he could recite the morning and evening prayers without faltering. As the boy grew older, he lived a happy and carefree life. He would rise in the morning and after reciting the Japji, he would meditate. Then he would seek out his friends and they would run around in the promenade of the Harbandar Sahib, playing hide-and-seek and fighting mock battles. Sometimes when the heat grew unbearable, his mother would summon him and ask him to accompany his father to court or play with his little brother Tyagmal, who the lad doted on. One day, as the lad was playing with his friends, a boy named Ratan snuck up beside him and pushed him, causing him to trip and fall. Atal Rai was not hurt, but he indignantly looked at his friend and said, You imbecile! Are you supposed to push your friends like this? 
the words had barely left his mouth when Ruthen began to behave in a very strange manner. He started tearing at his clothes. He would laugh one moment and cry the next. A torrent of filthy abuse would erupt from his mouth as he ran hither and thither, his hair in a wild, unkempt halo around his head. Ataldrai, oblivious of all this, continued to play with his friends until it was time for the midday meal. In the afternoon, Ratan's father, Harji, brow furrowed with anxiety, approached Ataldrai with folded hands. My lord, I have but one child. He is the apple of my eye. He is my everything. Mercy, my lord, please forgive him. Atal Rai looked at Harji in surprise and asked, What on earth happened to him? Then he turned to his friend, his eyes twinkling, and simply said, What's up, Ratan? In the flash of an eye, Ratan was himself again. The news spread like wildfire, and Atal Rai's fame began to spread far and wide. Pretty soon, throngs of the faithful suffering from every imaginable ailment, started to flock to Atalrai to be blessed, bearing gifts and offerings, which the lad generously gave away to his friends and companions. Atalrai loved all his friends, but his closest companion was a boy named Mohan, roughly ten months his junior. Mohan was none other than the child of Gurmukh, the older Sikh who had beseeched Guru Hargobind for the boon of a son when Atal Rai's birth was being celebrated. Whenever Atal Rai played a competitive game with his friends, he would lead one team and Mohan the other. One afternoon, when Atal Rai was around eight, he decided to arrange a Kiddo Kundi or ball and stick match, and of course, he and Mohan led the rival teams. It was to be a high-stakes game, for the losers would have to carry the winners piggyback around the parkarma or promenade surrounding the Harmandar Sahib. The match was intense and continued until dusk, with Atalrai's team emerging victorious. Since it was turning dark, the lads agreed that the piggyback rides would be claimed in the morning and returned to their homes. Mohan went back home as well, ate with his doting parents, chatted with them, and tired from all the running and playing, crawled into bed. In the middle of the night, his mother, who was sleeping on the cot next to his, was awakened by a child's voice exclaiming, Oh, Guru, oh, Guru. She got up with a start to find her son's bed empty. Her heart pounding, she leaped out of bed to find her son on the floor, his face pale and his mouth bloody. She screamed out loud, waking up Gurmukh as well as their neighbors. Nobody could understand what had happened to the lad. The neighbors and relatives ran helter-skelter looking for a healer, and when one was finally found, he shook his head and said, the boy has been bitten by a snake. There is nothing I can do. The poison has spread throughout his body.
dark thoughts welled up in Gurmukh's mind. As tears flowed from his old eyes, and his wife writhed and screamed in agony. The guru blessed me with a son. Did he see fit to take him away? The next morning, Atal Rai rose, and with a pleasurable sense of anticipation, went to seek out his companions who had gathered in the open area where they usually played. The winning team was eager to claim their prize, but Mohun, of course, was nowhere to be seen. He was scared, said a lad in a mocking voice. He couldn't bear the thought of losing. Mohan? Scared? Scoffed another? Mohan is never scared, and he is always fair and honorable. Well, maybe he got busy, said a third. Maybe his parents sent him somewhere on an errand. His house isn't far. We should go check on him. Well, go fetch him then, commanded Atal Rai, and one of his friends scurried off. When the lad got to Mohan's house, he was dumbfounded. A group of men sat on the floor outside the door. Some sat solemnly in silent reflection. Others wept openly. He peeked inside the house, which resounded with the sounds of wailing and shrieking. He could see Mohan's mother weeping and beating her breast, her hair unkempt as her friends and relatives, also mourning, tried to console her. What happened? he asked. Mohan was bitten by a snake as he slept. He died. He died? The news was brought to Atalrai. He died? asked Atalrai. Impossible. How can he die? He owes me a piggyback ride. Saying that, Atalrai stormed into his friend's house. The women stopped their piteous wailing upon seeing the guru's young son, who made his way to Mohan's still form lying on the floor wrapped in a shroud. He prodded him with his stick, which he had brought with him, and said, Wake up, Mohan. You shall not cheat me of my prize. Wake up with the name of God on your lips. The assembly gasped. Mohan began to stir, and then sleepily opened his eyes. The words, Vaheguru, Vaheguru, on his lips. As he beheld his friend, Mohan spoke. I'm sorry I overslept. I'm awake now, and you shall have your piggyback ride. Atal Rai and his companions went back to their sport, oblivious 
of the news of what he had wrought, spreading like wildfire through Amritsar, some exclaimed in wonderment, while others expressed no surprise at all, attributing the miracle to the formidable spiritual powers of the house of Guru Nanak. The news made its way to the Akal Bunga as well, where Guru Hargobind was holding court. A Sikh who had witnessed everything ran to the Guru's presence to report on what had happened. Breathlessly he told the tale and then congratulated his master. This is not a surprise, O Guru, that your son was able to raise the dead. After all, you are known to be merciful and caring. Before the Guru even had a chance to react, Gurmukh and his relatives ran into his presence, loudly proclaiming his greatness and expressing their thanks. The Guru calmly bade them sit and simply said, All is the blessing of Guru Nanak and that of his congregation. After Gurmukh and his relatives had left, Guru Hargobin sat silently, deep in thought, mulling over the events of the morning. And then Atal Rai entered the court with his friends. As the lad approached the Guru to pay his respects, his companions took their customary seats towards the rear. The Guru looked at his young son and beckoned summoning him closer. What you did today, my son, was not right. Life and death are in the hands of God. You forgot these words that your grandfather spoke. Mare rakhe eko aap, manukke kich nahi hath. Life he gives and takes away, Mortals in this have no say. This is divine law, and to defy it is unthinkable. It is rebellion. How can a mortal presume to rival the one? He who has fire at his command needs to understand its power and its use. You refuse to submit to his will. The state that you found your friend in? was by his will, and you revived him without his leave. This is unacceptable. Listen, when your grandfather Guru Arjan was being tortured in Lahore, he could have used his formidable spiritual powers to destroy his tormentors in the flash of an eye. But did he? No. Do you know why? Because to him... Nothing was above the will of God. Accepting the will of the divine without question is our creed. The house of Nanak lives and dies by this. Today, you have abandoned this principle that all our forebears have lived by. Atal Rai stood silently, shock writ large on his face, his eyes downcast. His body was motionless and he seemed to be in a trance. Finally, 
The lad emerged from his reverie. He saluted his father, his guru, and quietly left the court, going straight to the Harmandar Sahib to pay his respects. He then turned his face towards the southern side of Amritsar and started walking until he reached the Kalsar tank. Here he bathed and once again becalmed, he crossed his legs and closed his eyes. The soothing words of the Japji issued from his mouth as if of their own accord. He then covered himself with a length of fabric and lay his beloved stick by his side and like a snake sheds his old skin, left, leaving his mortal form behind. South of the Harmandar Sahib rises a tall, octagonal, nine-storied structure, originally a shrine built around the remains of the young Atal Rai. It evolved into a gurdwara, a Sikh place of worship over time. Known as Baba Atal, the monument is an everlasting reminder of the poignant tale of Atal Rai, who, despite his tender age at the time of his passing, received the honorific Baba, which means venerable old man. When Guru Hargobind got the news of his young son's demise, he rushed to the spot by Kalsar, where his body lay. A large group of the Guru's Sikhs followed him, and soon the child's mother and grandmother also arrived. The calm of Kalsar was rent by heartbreaking lamentations until the Guru commanded the assembly to be calm. A funeral pyre of fragrant sandalwood was prepared. One of the six respectfully approached the Guru and asked that the Guru's son be cremated at a more prominent place Rather than the thickly wooded environs of Kalsar, he will be cremated here, said the Guru. Today, this place is desolate, but there will be a day when thousands will come and pay their respects to Baba Atal. He was a good son, an obedient son, who learned that each one of us is subject to divine will. He is with me forever as I am with him. He is not dead, for his name shall forever be immortal. His life will be a beacon for the sons and daughters of my Sikhs. Just as he was obedient, he shall inspire them to be so as well.
This retelling of the story of Baba Atal is a translation excerpted from Ashtaguru Chamatkar by Pai Veer Singh. I have to confess that I was somewhat ambivalent about including it in the story of the six. First of all, it attributes miraculous powers to Guru Hargobind's son and is thus, in a sense, antithetical to the values of the Sikh faith. Besides, it feels that the young child was put to a severe, even cruel test. Yet, this parable is powerful in many ways. It emphasizes the importance of submitting to divine will, which is fundamentally important in the Sikh faith. It is also a powerful testament to the values that the Gurus imparted to their followers and then lived by. Surely Guru Hargobind loved his precocious and spiritual son. Surely he was not oblivious of the impact of his rebuke. And yet, the lad had violated divine law. A price had to be paid. The altar of principles often demands sacrifice. Guru Hargobind's forebears had never been found wanting on that count. He was not either. The gurus who followed him would abide by the same principles. The Story of the Six is written and narrated by Subpreet Singh, author of the poem Kultar's Mime, which was adapted for the stage and tells the story of the massacre of the Six in Delhi in 1984. His second book, The Camel Merchant of Philadelphia, set in the court of Maharaja Ranjit Singh, was recently published. Both are available on Amazon. The Story of the Six is produced by Almast Media. Our theme music is a rendition of a traditional Sikh hymn by the late Bai Avtar Singh. This episode features a rendition of Raga Chandrakonts by the well-known Indian classical flute maestro Steve Gorn. Season 2 of The Story of the Six is sponsored by the Chardi Kala Foundation, the Sawney Family Foundation, and Manpreet Kaur and Ishdeep Singh. I'm co-producer and audio engineer Erica Wong. In the next episode of The Story of the Six, Guru Hargobind makes a rousing declaration of sovereignty which leads to the first armed confrontation between the Sikhs and the Mughals. Thank you for joining us.